Hello and welcome to the Society for Acute Medicine's podcast. Here we discuss topics, cases and anything new and upcoming in the world of acute medicine. This is our view and take. Remember to always do your own reading around the topics we discuss. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to this week's um, podcast and we're doing, well, ambulatory care or SDEC, take your pick as to which one you want to call it and I think we'll probably touch on that in a bit. Um, 87% of trusts have an ambulatory care unit and 89% of those are run by acute physicians. So this is a really important topic. Um, I've got with me two colleagues to discuss this. I don't think any of us describe ourselves as an expert in ambulatory care, but we all work in them and we thought this would be quite a useful time to discuss um, ambulatory care or SDEC and what we can do with our current setup to make it better. And I guess that's the first point is that some of you listening to this might not have any services at all. Um, and some of you might have an all singing, all dancing, fully functioning unit with virtual wards and also hospital at home setup. So let's do some introductions to the team and you can tell us what your current setup is at the same time. So Kellum. Hi everyone, I'm Kellum. Uh, I'm an acute physician in uh, Dorset in Bournemouth and Poole. Um, and uh, we're currently going through a, quite a big transition locally where we're merging to one acute site. We do currently have two acute sites with each their own individual uh, uh, SDECs. Um, the main thing that we're trying to develop at the moment is direct streaming both from the emergency department and from uh, our ambulance service. It's very much in the pilot phase and uh, my, my perspective is it seems to be going quite well at the moment. Simon? Hi, uh, I'm Simon Patton. Um, I'm an acute physician here in Exeter. Um, I'm also the clinical lead for the acute medical and SDEC department. And we run a fully integrated, as you might call it, all singing, all dancing unit. And so we have virtual wards, ambulatory care, uh, hospital at home. We've been streaming from emergency departments now for last uh, few years and we take um, direct SWAST referrals, uh, as, which is our ambulance service as well to SDEC. So we, we, we've kind of been running these uh, developments for a bit. So we'd be really happy to, you know, share uh, our experiences around there because I know that's a, a hot topic. Um, but like Kellum, we're also merging. And so we're merging with uh, North Devon, who is uh, also has an SDEC and is trying to develop um, some of these. So um, real uh, interesting times in, in the opportunities coming. I guess one of the big things that I'd like us to maybe touch on or our attitudes as we go around as well is, is about 111 streaming, because although you, Callum, you mentioned ED and SWAST, or rather ambulance, um, I, I think that's one of the big things that we're we're thinking about at the moment is how, how do we manage that kind of challenge? Um, but I think that's probably later on in, the episode um and i think it'd be great vicky if you could tell us a little bit about um your you and your unit yeah so i suppose it's a bit interesting for me so i set up an ambulatory care unit in our trust at the royal liverpool site um, and saw that develop over about five or six years from a little clinic that used to run once a day to a to a much bigger sort of ambulatory care unit and then I've currently just swapped sites so I'm on a, a different site so I'm no longer clinical lead for the ambulatory care unit and um, and work in a different ambulatory care unit which does similar um things similar sort of patients but um 
there are a few subtle differences. And I think one of the things I felt is that having a seven day service is absolutely massive because, you know, if you have a patient on a Friday that needs IV antibiotics or a quick review at the weekend, it's so valuable to be able to get that. And it does sort of affect your decision making a little bit. So I so I, the thing that I'd like to discuss next is uh, patient selection. And I'm going to start with something slightly controversial. Vicky, can yeah. I interrupt you? Sorry, just yeah. for a sec. Um, I, I think um, we've mentioned between us a, a few definitions because yeah. I, I'd love to get on to patient se- uh, selection. Yeah. But as you mentioned, um, uh, that people are at different stages of development. Mm. We mentioned ambulatory. We mentioned SDEC. Yeah. Um, um, wh- what do we all mean by all of these terms and, and how – uh, how do we differentiate them? I, I guess in my head, I've got some really clear rules that I like to apply and, and have segregated our areas. But I'd love to hear what uh, you and Kellum think about these wonderful definitions. And then I think we should definitely get into the patient selection because I think that's really the money and the really excitement. I think the key thing for me that overrides everything else is that it is same day. It is not something that requires regular ongoing follow-up. It is not something that could be served by another uh, medical specialty clinic in an appropriate time frame. It is same-day emergency care. So the way I always like to try and explain it to juniors is that if 10 years ago you would have seen that person on the acute medical take and admitted them to a hospital bed, but they don't need a hospital bed to lay in and have things like oxygen or, or intravenous antibiotics, fluids, that sort of thing, then they are appropriate for same-day emergency care. So this might make the podcast podcast more fun, but I don't know if I agree, and I don't think I've ever caught myself um, disagreeing with Kellum in my life before. Um, so um, it, to me, it's all about keeping patients out of hospital. So the win-win, and I loved it when it was called ambulatory care, and I, and I really get grumpy about the fact that it's now changed to same day, actually. Um, because for me, ambulatory care should be about hospital avoidance. And the real benefit is keeping those frailer patients at home. But often you can't do that in the same day. So here's my analogy. So you've got a 20-year-old that comes in who's very well. She's on the pill. She's got pleuritic chest pain. You can pull her from A&E and you can wait for a D-dimer. And if Worst case scenario, that's positive. You can get some sort of imaging for her possible pulmonary embolus. But I'm not sure that always needs an acute physician um, to do that. But then you can also get somebody who's quite complex, who's got a lot of medical issues, who we can really help keep out of hospital. But there's no way we're going to be able to sort that out in the same day. And it sort of depends on your radiology services and that sort of thing, I guess, as well. So you might have somebody with painless jaundice who's otherwise well, but they need an ultrasound that, or a CT scan, and then they might need referral on. But in the meantime, you might want to check their liver tests or whatever. And those are the patients that I hugely feel value of keeping out of hospital but you can't do it same day so I'm a bit torn and I sometimes feel like all the patients that get thrust with low risk chest pain from ED I'm not sure how much benefit we add always to those Simon's chomping at the bit there. <laughs> I, I love it because this is this is the area I think um, throws everybody. And you you know I recently had the pleasure of 
going on a tour of multiple sites uh, on behalf of the ICS um, uh, to have a look at how people are delivering and, and help advise them. And um, I think it's really clear that th- this is the big debate. So in my head, uh, we've made all our areas um, separated. But if you imagine a Venn diagram, they kind of overlap. And so we might go very purely with Kellum's decision, uh, uh, kind of definition on SDEC. And I would absolutely agree firmly that SDEC is about this same day, this alternative, though we might be a bit cheeky and also within our referral pathway go, do you know what, if we risk traffic, stratify you over the phone we might say your same day starts the next day uh, but let's get into that another point because that's about patient selection um, but then we also have ambulatory care which really does vicky's um kind of work and we have our virtual ward with our hospital at home and so i kind of see them all as kind of slipping into each other but i like to define them differently and they're actually placed very carefully in different sections of our unit very strategically to really show it's different and we've got different ways to book in because in ambulatory i think it's about organized bookings so patients get a time slot they come in they get those things and we can continue that care onwards but we staff it differently sdec is about whoa it's just a bit of a free fall and i love it um and then virtual ward is about kind of mixing very much more a holistic um, target, usually with some of our more um, maybe failure patients. But also um, for Devon, we've got an enormous catchment area geography wise. And so we've got to manage distances. And sometimes it's really unfair to make someone drive two and a half hours for a 10 minute uh, appointment. And so we've got to really do that. And that's our road system rather than our literal physical uh, as a crow flies. So one of the big things of doing that is we get good data. And when I see other sites, when they merge ambulatory kind of follow-ups and SDEC together, then actually you don't really know what they're doing, but they've got some big numbers. And actually when you delve into it, their actual percentage avoidance of the take is minimal, but they're bringing back loads of people for random other stuff. Um, So that's kind of where I take it, but I think it's a really great debate that confuses the hell out of everybody. um, And therefore is um, just makes it very hard, I think, to copy, mimic, or really choose that best practice. And certainly we see that in the national guidance um, uh, where we talk about different processes and the evidence base is really struggles with that. Uh, and of course it doesn't get reflected internationally. So international evidence really falls flat when it comes to the UK, because we're again, just being a little bit different from everybody else. But I think you make the really good point there about data. Um, and it's about trying to prove that. So I know that when you maybe pull, I don't know, a set number, let's say, for example, it's 20 or 30, depending on the size of your hospital, patients from A&E, um, people are delighted and they're tracking that. And that is the one sort of figure that is very recordable. It's not, it can't really be fudged. It's it's very straightforward. How many patients have you pulled out of A&E into your ambulatory care department? And you get that um, all the time from people walking around with clipboards. Well, you've only pulled 20 yesterday or whatever. And yet, and this is where I suppose I have to be a bit careful because this is where my heart is because my heart is with those frailer patients that I just see their journey, if we do admit them, is, is catastrophic a lot of the time because they're so at risk of a hospital admission. 
And I always feel like, well, the benefit if I've kept five of those patients out of hospital who, let's face it, would be in hospital for three months. And we tried to do a bit of work when we we looked at that and we we, cut, we did a cost analysis of how many bed days those patients would be in for and the value of that. And it meant nothing. Um, it really wasn't, you know, a, oh, yeah, well, whatever. I think it's called soft data. Whereas if you pull 40 a day from ED, that's hard data. But I love that bit about the differentiation, Simon, because I think that's so important because you can do both. But you do need to make sure you're being fair to the patient who's coming back so they don't wait six hours to be seen as an emergency. Yet there's a lot there, isn't there? I I think um, I'm not so sure about your... I agree, obviously, because it was my point on the data. But um, the the soft um, bit, there's a Cochrane review that shows actually if you keep these frailer patients out... Um, there is a morbidity and mortality benefit. So that's where kind of we're going into probably off topic slightly, but where virtual wards kind of come in. And the Cochrane Review of Virtual Wards and aspects from there showed that if we can convert these patients into same days and keep them out, there's a morbidity mortality, but also um, at six months, less of them in residential homes. And God knows we, we you know, that's a real benefit for our population. Uh, and speaking probably with Kellum on this one, uh, who I reckon he probably doesn't have a completely different demographic. This makes up a fairly large percentage of our take. Um, so being in the Southwest, the lovely um, uh, residential home of the UK, um, the, um, the, 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 our, our, our average age group is, 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 is on the elder side. Um, and so this is a big impact, keeping them out um, and impacting their lives hugely. But we've got a segue here, and uh, unless Kellum, you've, you've got a point, to go on to patient uh, selection, because I want to keep us on track. Go on, Kellum, you've got to disagree with me now. <laughs> I don't have to disagree. I think um, in terms of patient selection, I, I think the, the discussion around pulling from the emergency department for uh, cases that may not historically have required a physician input is interesting. And I think that feeds into the patient selection bit because we locally have gone down an avenue where we have decided that the the overall risk level faced by the, the population, the district, and the trust is so great in the emergency department that all same-day emergency care areas need to try and alleviate that pressure. Um, and a way that we are trying to help with that is, is to take um, uh, presentations at the front door that may well end up needing physicianly input, like you described, Vicky, a pleuritic chest pain in the young lady. Um, but actually, once we've done our baseline investigations and, and you know, chest X-ray, D-dimer, et cetera, it, it, they may have been able to have been discharged from the emergency department. But I think five, six, seven, eight years ago, that process would have taken two or three hours in the emergency department. Unfortunately, now that process is taking 14 to 18 hours. And so what we are, what we believe we're doing is alleviate, alleviating that front door pressure so ambulances can offload and can go and pick up those frailer, older patients that we all have heard the stories um, of them laying on the floor for days on end. So I do agree with that. And I think you you have to be careful because those patients may then walk as well. Um, and, you know, we know that some of those people will have a PE and if we don't treat it, it will be fatal. So so I do agree with that, but I wonder who should do that. And there, there's a, there was a bit of work um, in my last hospital that's looking at ED-ESTEC 
for those type of patients, which would then free up physician aesthetics um, to look at the sort of more complex medical patients. And then, of course, what we haven't even touched on is the, the work that's going forward with frailty aesthetics as well. So I think going back again, I hate agreeing with Simon so much, <laughs> but the the thing here is that it's hugely complex. It means so many different things to so many people and that you can end up trying to achieve it all. And that does nobody any favours because then you can get 20 wellish people non-differentiated from SDEC at the same time as a lot of people coming back for a planned review or results of their CT scan who then end up inadvertently waiting hours you know, just for an appointment, what would have historically been in a clinic, and then some frail people thrown into the mix as well. So to differentiate it, Simon, seems like the, the holy grail almost that you've achieved there. Um, don't know about holy grails, but um, <laughs> obviously like the context. Um, the um, I, I think it, it's the big challenge, because I can hear both of you. The, the question is about mission creep, isn't it? And also about value. So, uh, you know, you always wonder, don't you, if we just shove a load of people out of ED and into SDEC, do we, do we actually, uh, are we just adding work load into things? You know, would these patients have just been quickly screened and sent out of ED and now actually we're doing this whole really ninja-like pulling system that actually just um, brings extra work on, but sounds really cool. Um, And I think that's one of our big, um, you know, challenges that we, you know, during this ED pull cycles that we've been doing is we regularly re-audit or the ones we kind of bringing up to try and look and go, are we, are we trying to get it right? And I guess we're so lucky in Exeter and, and, I, and I hope it's the same for both of you. We've got a really fantastic relationship between our acute medicine and emergency medicine um, uh, departments that it is just so easy to come back and forward. And we've written a lot of joint guidance um, around these. So we know that each other are working off the same principles and that seems to have helped. I guess um, it's it's the tidal wave, though, isn't it? You know, chest pain is just this never-ending kind of deliverable um, of patients to the hospital. Um, and I hear about this is I wonder what you guys think because this is we're kind of in this patient selection bit. We um, we we use referrals. Everybody has to refer in, um, and we try and make it as, as as easy as possible. But sometimes we um, we've trained our staff up to risk stratify over the phone and utilize those referring referrals to help kind of do. So we we use Hestia score for our P's to look about ambulation, and mainly because our our demographic is so old. So if you use SPESI or anything like that. Everybody's positive. We're screwed. Um, uh, so actually, Hestia, which is designed for ambulatory, so it's an even better choice. Um, it, 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 we use that over the phone with the clinicians that are willing to comply and therefore slot those into the next morning, making sure they're anticoagulated, blah, blah, blah. And it allows us a kind of offset of that afternoon into the morning. And we started using that for other conditions where we can start to triage that prioritization, I think, Vicky, that you talked about, because actually there are these complex patients that really are in and we've just got to see them and we want to spend the time because there's the value. Uh, And there's this multiple, you know, pulling the 2030. But actually, if you can stream them, not just up to us, but over time, I think that makes a real difference. Yeah, I think um, I, we have locally sort of tried to 
uh, incorporate a more formalized triage and scoring process, I think what we felt was that we were maybe missing some opportunities uh, and that actually having a more broad, hey, do you know what? If their new score is less than four and they can sit in a chair, give us a call. Uh, And that way we feel like we're not missing the opportunity to help those individual patients in the overall system. Um, And obviously that requires uh, a big change in the sense of who is taking that call because then whoever is taking that call needs to be appropriately trained. And so locally, yes, we as consultants are taking all of the same-day emergency care referrals. That then adds to the workload for us as individuals uh, and potentially distracts from other important clinical activity. So as, as with anything, there are always positives and negatives, and I think it is a really hard balance. And it is very interesting to hear you know, how other people are doing it around the country. So I'm really curious, Callum, um, do you think all consultants have the same threshold? No, absolutely not. And, and that's, that's where the nuances of individual practice comes in, isn't it? I think what, what's important is that at least within a department, you've maybe got a degree of symmetry so that when the emergency department or primary care ring you, they have the same expectation because you're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And do you use a scoring system like AMPS or GAPS? You you said that you, you didn't initially because you were worried about yeah, so Have you ditched it completely? So it, it is it is there as a concept, but we don't thrust it. You know, we don't inc- we don't push it, we don't ask for it, we don't we don't necessarily document it. Um, but it is something that we we try to, you know, make people aware of. What we're more what we're more interested in is, is the mantra of of being fit to sit with a new score of less than four. And one last thing before I <laughs> Um, do you um do the people taking the referrals are they in charge of the unit are they the ones that are going to be dealing with these patients if that makes sense yes yes so uh, yes absolutely that we have we have toyed with the idea of it not necessarily being the consultant but maybe the nurse coordinator maybe our advanced nurse practitioners um uh, at the moment it is still with the consultant it may change in the future but yes they have direct oversight of the overall uh picture of the acute medicine service okay i i i've got i love it because there's three areas here that are really interesting because one is you know who should take the call so we did a trial of consultants versus our um, what we call emissions coordinators, which are band sixes and sevens that are hardcore in the AMU, you know, are really experienced. And we demonstrated no difference. Um, and, or really, so let's just say statistically negligible difference, certainly not worth the money, um, difference and the time and in pressure. So we failed, but I know that there was a publication recently from our friends in the Southwest, a little bit further up who actually demonstrated that consultants could make a difference. So it's a really interesting topic there, uh, who should take the call. Um, and then you really hit on, uh, something I love to talk about. Uh, and I can't help and is, um, you know, choosing, uh, you know, scores and bits and pieces around this because I think it's so divisive and and, it, and it's really fun as a result because um, actually what is the right thing and who should do what? And people love like, oh, I take everybody that's news, news lesson four and AMB and GAP and everything like that. 
Um, I, so I really love to explore that a little bit as well, because um, I'm going to contro- controversially say that we don't have an upper limit on our new scoring. Uh, we have no problem taking an eight or 10 or whatever they go up to now, uh, as long as it, it, it's a it's clinically appropriate. So what we're not obviously going to take is, wow, this guy is hemorrhagic shock. <laughs> Let's go for this. But we have, you know, we do look at certain conditions. You know, the easiest one being an SVT will score really high. But what a brilliant patient for SDEC. Um, and um, and playing those out. Um, and then we've had lots of reviews around AMB and GAP to try and work out how to do it. And in the end, we just built our own triage uh, scoring system, but involved gap. So, Kellum, tell me right now, why the consultants? Why can't you let your nurses that really want to do it take the course? I, I think that you know it is it is an excellent conversation. I think that the, I think fundamentally for us locally, it boils down to the available workforce. So our advanced nurse practitioners lead the show, you know, they run the show in our same day emergency care. And so if we ask them to start taking the calls, it detracts from their ability to work through the, 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 the patients that are presented to our service. Similarly, we we are we have a band six seven that is usually coordinating, but uh, the coordinator role is incredibly busy and challenging with flow, as, as I'm sure everybody listening can appreciate. And so, I think it is felt that adding the additional cognitive strain of taking the calls to any of those individuals is 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 too great at the moment and and particularly where we have issues with retention and recruitment actually having a band six or seven that's maybe comfortable enough in their experience to do that role at the moment is limited as well and so i think for us locally it is a workforce availability issue that's a that's great points isn't it and i think that demonstrates about organically how you develop and where you you go and what your roles you allocate and where your resources are vicky who takes your calls who makes the decisions um so i've got experience of two units so the one the unit that i was more involved in sort of setting up the we started off with an advanced nurse practitioner with a bleep um and that didn't work at all um because um the the when you're with a patient you don't answer your bleep straight away and that just wasn't good enough for triage um they couldn't wait that long because they need a fairly quick answer so then it and we also found that um it was why i asked kellen the question about um who's then taking responsibility because i think people who are taking the call um if they are less senior have an element of sort of hesitation sometimes um whereas consultants you know we all vary don't we but our risk taking decision is different and i would you know like oh yeah yeah that's fine i'll happily deal with that yeah it doesn't fit with any particular new school criteria or whatever but you know i know that i can get that person home and what to do so we then shifted to consultants taking the call for that reason because they had more of an idea of what we could get home and it wasn't. I think Callum's point is valid about um, you just miss so many patients that you could take if you base it purely on a scoring system and or a new score or AMP score or GAP, whatever you use. There were so many patients that we just knew we could get home. So, yeah, that, that's, what, that's why we changed, actually. Um, you still find, though, 
um, you can have a system. It doesn't always get followed. Like my current hospital, I've got a bleep for ambulatory care referrals and it never goes off. Um, and, and people ring the, the senior nurses who are extremely experienced and, and tend to know what they can take, probably more so than me now because it's a new trust. It's so interesting. So this is where, you know, I guess those scores come in um, because, you know, You've talked so much about, you know, Kellen's brought brilliant points about the resources and, and Vicky, you're talking about those missed ones. So, so, so I, to me, and I guess we've said this, I've said this before with, with other discussions that we've had, I quite like the data and, and seeing how we're, we're able to build because to me, it's that consistency of approach. And if we know how our consistency works, um, because we've got a pro- clear process, then it does it. We can reduce that variability, but then we can alter it to try and increase that threshold. And so it's kind of stepwising how how we go. So, you know, I guess to you guys, m- my thoughts are that actually scores are really helpful in that. And so I'm a big fan of the gap score. Don't think it's the be all and end all, but we we embedded that in amongst other aspects into our our triage score to give that consistency and stability, but also made sure that rather than having a separate referral line, it was the only referral line. So if you're referring to acute medicine, full stop, nothing else, uh, and that's everybody, then then you go through that one referral line and actually that person taking those calls will push them into different categories as part of our triage process when you enter the unit. Um, and they sit in the triage process. So they actually get a direct feedback loop, which I, I think Vicky, you mentioned really important that someone taking the call gets to see what they do um, as they go through. It's the ownership of the unit is so important, isn't it? To know, and especially if you are doing a bit of a hybrid and it's not as well defined maybe as yours um, to see, well, I've taken a bit of a risk on this one. I want to make sure that this one might turn out to be a bit more unwell. I'll make sure that I touch base with this junior before they go and clerk them or even see them myself or whatever. It's a real, you know, we talk about acute physicians and what's our skill set. I think we show that in when we're running an ambulatory care department, that is what the skill set of an acute physician is. Bingo. I think you're nailing it. If we have to have an identity, I think it's the management and identification of risk. And that really makes Acute medicine, its role within ambulatory, SDEC, whatever we want to call it, it's it's absolutely what it's our core business. It's what we do, and I think we we clear, you know, frankly, I think we do it better than than most, um, um, you know, specialties around that side. And and I think we should be proud of it. And I think sometimes, you know, it is owning it. Um, cool. I think we 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 should move on. What. Well, where are we going now, Vicky? Lead us. Lead us in your direction. So I guess one of the key questions, and especially this is going to be huge for units just starting up, or sorry, seasoned units as well. I don't think it's a secret that we're all under a bit of pressure at the moment. How, and one of the biggest frustrations is when units get bedded and the nightmare that, that is. Any top tips for allowing your unit to not be bedded? How do you get around that, Kellen? So we we had a big problem with this about six or eight months ago, um, where every morning we would come in and our trolley assessment area, which is predominantly where our GP admissions would come, or those that maybe, as Simon has alluded to, have got a slightly higher new score than would typically be acceptable to sit in a chair, would go. And so it would extremely limit our capacity to manage people in an ambulatory way. Um, 
And ultimately, what our um, uh, ambulatory care lead ended up doing was uh, in order for the area to be bedded, that needs exec on call approval. So in order for our bed managers to put patients there, they have to wake up the executive that's on call and then the executive has to make that decision. And, and in the last, <laughs> so, so, so six to eight months ago, it would be routine that it would always be bedded. In the last six to eight months, I think it's happened twice. Okay, so because these don't go out that that you know much relation to when we record them, we're now October. So it'd be interesting to see what your answer is in January, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 I, and I will say that the, the two occasions it has happened is in the last fortnight. So you know, fingers crossed. Let's put that in there as well. <laughs> um, I think it's it's great, and I love this uh, kind of because of all the weird things that people do. <laughs> like people talk about bollards in the way and pulling out you know, oxygen and making the rooms too inhospitable to, you know, accept it. And I think in truth, under hospital pressures, if it really comes to it, you know, I think there's a real example that um, we'll put a patient anywhere we literally can. And so um, I, I I think the the best way and, and what we also worked with is is really seconding um, Callum. We made it, we worked really hard to demonstrate how effective it was, how valuable it was, what the impact was if you didn't, if you bedded it for the next day. So short-term wins versus medium. And, and we've got the same kind of, similar kind of level agreement that it has to be really at that very top sign-off to go through. And, and with the knowledge of what that's the impact that's going to be the next day. Um, and I guess with the ED pull, which you mentioned, um, what we're looking at at the moment and and and, and where we are is that um, with our we, we are suffering like everywhere else that there are patients in ED uh, waiting for medicine overnight is that we really demonstrate its worth in the morning by pulling uh, patients directly into SDEC as soon as the day starts. So eight o'clock in the morning, acute physician, this one can go to SDEC, this one can go to it, and there's a visible pull. But if you bet it, we can't do that, and then you're stuck. And and I think to me that's the only way that works. But I, I I'd love it for everybody to sit out there listening to send in all their really weird and wonderful ones because I really enjoy them. <laughs> so so firstly, whatever you do, don't pull the oxygen because I have heard that no, too, no. and um, it's a disaster because I agree. Your well, your well patients will become not well, and you've got no oh. oxygen in there. It's a nightmare. And your COPDs that you can yeah. get home, and all these other ones, it, like it just cuts so, off your options. Yeah, bollards. You know that there is an element of making it physically impossible to get a bed in does work. Um, but then just make sure you can still get your resource cart in. So if you're going to put a bollard, it needs to be just wider than your resource cart, but just shorter than your bed. Um, so there's practical tips there. I think. The difficulty there, Simon, is when you've got a really good functioning unit, you've got your data, everybody knows it's working, and you might get people to agree, the execs to agree. When you're starting out, you haven't proved that concept yet, and that's where it's really tricky. And I think that's that's it, because I, I guess where I am at the moment is this is what we built up over time. And, and I guess much like you, Vicky, you know, I set up our, our area, and so this is years of process and driving it and so what we uh to get to where we are um we definitely got bedded multiple times we um suffered all these things and i think you have to if you're starting off accept 
that realistically that's going to happen and um and don't get too you know I, it will be upsetting it'll be distressing but don't feel it's the end because it very much isn't the end and it is about just going this is a long goal and if you're thinking that you're going to create an air stack and it's going to be beautiful immediately um it's just not it takes time to embed the processes it's really the culture that you have to change and so um my top tip for starting out is to look at really where's your big wins with your high impacts and that may be you know as we've said chest pains which you know we we all see all the time and it's saying but go let's hit some key conditions start building your data but also start showing how you can manage that risk and start that cultural change which will lead in time to be able to present it but it's a tough journey yeah so i would say a top tip as well is we did a pilot week and we, we interestingly we had a unit that was not on the ground floor it was in a disused ward now you wouldn't want that long term because clearly having your SDEC right near ed is massively important for the longer term but actually it worked really well for a pilot week because it was never going to get bedded so and and everybody sort of signed up to it for a week because it's a pilot week and that can give you proof of concept. And that really helped me because once I'd got that proof of concept and we got the exec team behind it, and also in your favour, it's a national objective. So you've got that as well, which really helps, which we didn't really have so much at the time when we were starting out. But um, a pilot week is always very useful. Yeah, we did a pilot fortnight and I can't agree more. That That's where our data really started to form. Do you know what? I don't think, I think it was four or five years later that we started to hit the same figures um, as our pilot week. Um, and I still couldn't quite work that out um, as to why we were so successful on our pilot week when we weren't in the ideal place. But it was because we were fully staffed. You know, everybody was on board with it. We had exactly the right circumstances and everything. So, yeah, it, that was a really useful thing to do. And then I think the other thing to maybe point out a bit more depressing is that you can have it working really, really well. Um, and then you get change in circumstances or whatever, like Kellen's saying now, and um, pressures change, and then it can go backwards a bit as well. And that can be really disheartening um, to sort of try and go, well, do you know what? It was working, but it, you've stopped it working and, and sit down and go back to the drawing board again. I think it comes back to the one take home from this so far is data. And I, I think actually what we've managed to do over the last few months, uh, and which is I think is why it's only resulted in being embedded twice, is is that we have demonstrated now over a prolonged period what we can achieve if we are given the appropriate resources. You take away that resource, the ability for us to achieve that is gone. And that's been demonstrated by on the couple of occasions it has been embedded. We, we raised this with our clinical director and medical director, and within a few hours, it's empty again. And so... I think they really now do fully understand exactly what we can offer if you let us. The key for me listening to this as well is it's what level of exec you've got, because let's not forget the pressure those poor bed management team are under. And they're actually faced with 99-year-olds on a corridor, you know, with no privacy whatsoever. And they want the best for them and they are making decisions based on patient need in front of them. And it's all really easy for us to say, oh, it's disgusting that they bedded this. But when we look at the people who are making those decisions, but they're often the night bed management team, which aren't necessarily seeing the benefit of that 8 a.m. We'll pull 20 people from ED. Um, so, 
you you really have to have that really important you know person who's invested making that call because if you rang up a middle manager at two in the morning and said I've got 40 people in the corridor I can get six 12-hour trolley breaches avoided by opening this area here and putting beds in you've given them a problem and a solution they're going to say yes so it's about getting the right person making that call in the middle of the night who understands the whole process I think. I think it's a really lovely point that you make though Vicky that the bed managers aren't the enemy and they are trying so hard on our face with decisions we wouldn't want. Um, and w- I think when you're, if you're building your, your environment or you're developing or you're just facing this every day is to really understand that with them. And I think it's the, you know, that, that, you know, corny, um, phrase of, of walking in their shoes. And, and I think if you can do that, and you can work with them and really try and understand a bit more about how both of you can work to a goal, then it's much more advantageous going forward. And certainly involving Ben management in, in your decisions about how you're setting up and going through that is really important. Making sure they've got a seat on the table will really help you in the long term. Yeah. I, I think that is, and that, so that nicely segues us into the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which was um, who, who are your key stakeholders in this? Um, Simon's already talked about having wonderful relationships with ED and a shout out to the, the Royal Liverpool ED department. I, I challenge anyone to, to beat them in terms of the, the most incredible ED team. Um, Bring and- it. <laughs> But they, but they were one of the reasons that I was able to to set up with my colleagues a really good ambulatory unit because the ED department just got it and totally got the idea that you don't just fling everyone and anyone. They understood the value of it and therefore help protect it. So ED, definitely important stakeholders. And then the other side of this is the specialties because, and this keys in a little bit to how Kellum and I were slightly disagreeing in patient choice at the beginning. If I'm going to take that patient who's got slightly high bilirubin, painless jaundice for their outpatient CT, I do not want them to be organising their ERCP or CT guided biopsy or whatever else it is. And believe you me, we've been in situations for weeks because we've got undifferentiated patients and nobody will take them. And that's when the sort of ambulatory that I truly love, the bit that my favourite bit, falls down badly because you've got somebody on your books that you can't sort of get rid of and you feel like you're not doing them a good service and they're taking disproportionate amount of time. Um, so them, the, as well as your bed management team and everybody else, they're your two stakeholders. Go on, Simon, how good's your ED? Um, I mean, everything you said, and better, <laughs> I guess. Obviously. <laughs> we'll, we'll go for a, a challenge paintballing. Yeah, that's it. I think I'm a firm, firm believer that paintballing is the only true way to uh, sort, sort out any of these kind of dilemmas. Um, so, um, yes, I think everything you said about ED uh, and bring them on is the right uh, but is that it is and I think we mentioned that right at the beginning with the chest pains we don't want to just copy people's work and in truth we're probably less efficient um, than EDs are at, at those masses that have been doing it a, a long time and I think we we need to recognize that as well with the ambulatory that you talk about is that 
um, someone, you know, especially undifferentiated cancers, they have, you know, getting them into the right tract and the right system means that they get specialist nurses input, they get the supports, they get a whole cascade. Whereas once you get stuck in ambulatory, and, and we do have that still, um, it, it's less efficient, it's more costly, we spend more time on them, and, and they also probably don't get as good a thing. So I think the the two points you really talk about are are critical um i think the other bits of your stakeholders are really obvious is getting a an executive sponsor um getting getting the directors involved you your own um you know it seems silly but your division needs to be really bought into um uh, and so actually you know very quickly your stakeholders will uh, amass but keeping your you know levels of whether it's the amds or cds or wherever involved but also your um divisional directors and managers to to really be able to advocate on yourself um uh, but then you also your own team um so if you're building from the beginning this is a changing culture <laughs> it's a changing work it's it's all about hearts and minds and getting people to understand that we can do things differently and that we're not immediately going to kill off everybody um, by doing something um it's slightly slightly more radical um so really engaging with your team and making sure they're behind you and i've seen sites that have not approach that and have got their executive sponsors but haven't got their actual team behind them and so you really need to engage your own team and that's from hcas up because actually you'll be surprised how much influence the everybody has on on a patient flow go on then kellum i'm going to throw you a challenge say you've got a unit and and this you know the royal liverpool i remember that I, there was nobody that we needed to convince because they're all quite new, dynamic, acute medicine trained consultants. It was easy, but not every unit's, you know, built like that. So, Kellen, let's say you've got somebody who doesn't believe in all this ambulatory care nonsense. If somebody needs to come in, they need to come in. Um, they shouldn't be pulling anybody from A&E because that's A&E's job. How do you convert them then? What would you say to them? The thing that really gets me on board is what I touched on right at the start, which is appreciating the wider pressures the whole integrated care system is under. So it's not focusing on the fact that you've maybe got a 25 patient ward round and that your emergency department has got a six hour wait to see a doctor. Uh, it, it is about looking at all of that, but then also considering the 92 year old grandmother who fell fell over two or three days ago and has called an ambulance, but is still waiting. And I think we've all heard of those awful stories in our own local areas, uh, maybe even worse. Uh, and, and you know, people coming to real harm because of those pressures. And I think that's where I really find myself wanting and, and striving to try and do the the pulling of patients from the emergency department. That yes, five years ago, even only five years ago, I. I wouldn't have been seeing in a same-day emergency care environment because they don't need a physician. But if it's something that we can resolve in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, rather than the six hours it would it would take in a, in, a, in a strained emergency department, why shouldn't we? And so I think going down that avenue, trying to demonstrate the overall benefit to the wider population that you serve it is far more powerful. I remember one of the most satisfying days I've had 
um, was when I went down the corridor and there was three or four people with paramedic crews with them. It's like, oh yeah, they're suitable for ambulatory and just taking those. I'm watching those visions of loveliness go back into the community to go and save more lives. And It felt so powerful and it's all of our problems. It's not, the, we, the worst units I've been aware of have been places where everybody works in a silo. So my issue is my you know, this, that, and the other. And, I, and 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 often that's when specialties have disengaged from the acute take because that's no longer on their radar and short staffing isn't either because the acute take has nothing to do with them and they just get really grumpy when their trainee is pulled. And it's when units work together, that's when you definitely get the best outcomes from patients. And it's, it's really hard because everywhere's under pressure now, aren't they? So to see that, yeah. Yeah. And touching on the bit you were saying there about working in silos, Vicky, it you know for us it that was the way we were able to get the 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 specialties on board as well, uh, and so it, personally in our unit we have every week a, a jaundice clinic, a hot neurology clinic, and a cardiology clinic, and they have bought into that process because we have been able to demonstrate to them well hey you know if you're available to us for for an afternoon we're not going to call you about these five patients, which frees you up to be doing X, Y, or Z. Uh, and similarly, you know, it streamlines, streamlines that process for them. And if we're able to provide that initial contact, almost triage, get it into the right service, it helps us because it avoids exactly what you were just talking about, Vicky, about not wanting to end up following up somebody for two or three weeks while you're organizing their ERCP and MDT discussion. But it also helps them because the basic stuff has already been done. Yeah. I I think um, the two powerful take-homes for everybody here, uh, and the number one is, Kellum, uh, your point about that ambulances. It's it, when you're in hospital, it's so easy to not to know or be aware. But actually, if the ambulances are stuck outside, yes, it's frustrating for you in the hospital. But oh my God, it's terrifying for those at home who, who are waiting. And and that is a supreme motivator for me. And that is why we're really keen to make our, our, our kind of going back to seats at the table is that ambulance service is very much a seat on our table. We want to hear from them and we have regular contact because it's so important that we reduce those ha- ambulance handover delays. We get them back out because God knows if it, it, it you know, I, I want them to be able to get quickly to, to these people. And it terrifies me when we see in the news about these kind of weights. Um, but I, I think, you know, Vicky, you know, this is the, the theme, isn't it, of, of building your SDEC and, and developing where you're going or building your ambulatory care. It's do it with people. You cannot do it on your own. You're so caught up and 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 it is involving all these times. And and I think again, another corny, maybe more management thing is is always looking in there for this win-win when you go to someone, is what is their win and what is your win? And if you can understand what they will gain out of it, you'll have so much a better conversation rather than going in and going, I want this or you need to do this. Um, you've got to try and think where's their pressure point and how can you help them with that that will enable you to then go. Because unfortunately, in acute medicine, much like ED, we, we give everybody work. Um, um, and it's rarely we take anything off. So how do we find these angles that can help people? And that's always what when I'm going to see someone, I'm thinking, what's the win for them in this conversation? So the other stakeholder that I just wanted to mention as well was primary care. So I did quite a lot of work with our primary care 
and went to quite a few meetings um, to educate them what ambulatory is and so that when they refer patients now, they can sometimes put perfect for ambulatory care, which helps triage, you know, um, and identify patients. And certainly at the hospital limit at the moment, the GPs can triage directly to ambulatory care versus ED, which, of course, is much better for patients if, if they can get to that place. Um, and explaining to, to primary care, because initially when we first started this, we'd see somebody with a high bilirubin painless jaundice and we'd send them home and they'd go, well, what's on earth have you done? And there was a few people initially that because we didn't communicate well enough, it was our fault, just got split back in again. Um, and then there was lots of discussion about, you know, up-to-date discharge summaries every time, which felt to us from a common sense perspective, there's no point, they're coming back tomorrow. But obviously if something happened overnight, especially if that scan was two, three days away, um, you need to just make sure people know what's happening. And, and most patients you can rely on, but not always. <laughs> um, so primary care really helped me see it from a different perspective as well. Um, so they were brilliant stakeholders to have. And if you're setting up SDEX or advancing that sort of stuff, then they're definitely people that you want to hear from and get their perspective. It's like anything. You'll see it from your point of view but you won't think about those unintended consequences. And if you've got the important stakeholders reminding you, like I was traumatized when one of my patients got sent back because we hadn't ruled out PE when their CTPA was the following day. Um, but it was just a lesson learned. And as long as you learn from them, then that's what you have to do, isn't it? I think we've probably covered all of the um, the key points that we wanted to. And, you know, we, we don't, we, I think us three could chat or <laughs> all day on on this and it'd be nice if we could summarize where we're up to so Simon what's your take-home messages um so I guess um to me is when we when we're looking at pathways and aspects from that try and think about um how does it actually benefit the patient and what's the the knock-ons um so we've talked a little bit about getting stuck in ambulatory care and other aspects i think it's sometimes very easy to not see those as well as the knock-ons of referring to primary care so when you said that i was like oh my god yes we had that um we absolutely sent people home and people at primary care didn't really understand what was going on um, and there's misconfusion and frustration. So very quickly, we've set out interim discharge letters to indicate that ongoing care is happening. Um, so I think, you know, that that's really important to think about your pathways and try and work through those steps. Um, I, I think it's really engaging with everybody and anybody you can. Um, but always try and think, what what is it? Especially in today, I mean, everybody's so exhausted and tired and under so much pressure. And coming to them and saying, I've got this really exciting new project, which is what my team has to put up with uh, for me, is, um, is trying to think what's the win for others and that maybe people aren't going to be as excited about your project as you are. And so therefore think, you know, what is it that it's going to help them feel that this is something they want to buy into when they've got, you know, waiting lists that are on ridiculous out the out the door kind of things and ambulance crews that are, are really spec. So I, I go really think about those bits. Um, and, and I think the best medicine that I do often originates around SDEC and ambulatory care. And I far prefer working in those areas than I do in 
the AMU because I think most of the time I, I do something really useful that day and I've definitely impacted on someone's um, outcomes and I've done something that I feel it, it really befitted my training and my job. Callum, do you want to do a summary of what, what you yeah. take home using? I think the first thing just to to add on to end with uh, to add to the end of Simon's comment there is that you know it wasn't that long ago I was a core medical trainee and actually SDEC was the reason I chose acute medicine as a specialty and I think it, as Simon alluded to it is the the most exciting dynamic ever changing piece of work that we do and certainly is is the most rewarding. Um, in, in terms of, uh, I think my take home points, I think the, the thing that resonated quite well with, with me is what Simon said about uh, bearing in mind your geography and trying to accommodate those that maybe don't have as easy access to the hospital. And that's obviously very important if you're trying to manage somebody in the same day environment. If they've got to spend five hours of that day traveling to and from, you've got to make sure that their trip is, is absolutely worthwhile. Um, and, and just to reiterate, having that overview of the whole system, not just your tiny little echo chamber on the acute medicine unit or even your emergency department, really do bear in mind what's, uh, what's around you. Um, and I think finally, I just wanted to very quickly add is that we need to bear in mind that although uh, we love doing this and we find it incredibly rewarding, um, I think personally anyway, same day emergency care is probably one of the most stressful environments uh, that you're in. You know, we haven't really touched on it and it could be its whole podcast on its own. But the, the decision making that we do, the, the risks that we take, uh, the triaging, the constant decision making, there is such a cumulative moral injury uh, for people, particularly if on occasion we get it wrong, and and we do get it wrong sometimes, uh, and so I think acknowledging that all of us are working in an incredibly stressful environment, that we just need to look out for each other, and when something goes wrong, you talk and you speak to each other. So for me, in summary, it would be if you're just setting up, think about where you're going to put the unit, think about how you can try and stop it being bedded down, and think about who your stakeholders are. For those of you who've sort of got a unit that's working, um, but you want to think about getting it better, I think if you haven't got a reliable way of getting data, you need to regularly audit it. And we're going to put some stuff on the show notes, but there is a um, suggested audit tool that um, Sam have put together that you can use. But you know, when was the last time you audited your ambulatory care? Um, and if you're not doing it every six months, you should be. And um, I think Simon's done lots of innovative things that looked at different things you can audit as well, like to who's making decisions and that kind of thing. Um, so I definitely think if you're at that stage, that's what you need to be looking at, your data and your auditing. And then the next stage, which I think, again, we need another podcast on, is what next? And that might encompass virtual wards. We touched a little bit on having ambulances um, take straight to SDEC and how you sort of get that set up. And I think that would be amazing. And that's your next step, isn't it? And then even further into that is hospital at home and, and how you can get that set up so that there's you've got all your range there, depending on where you are, of different, hopefully, top tips that we've given you. Um, there's a lot of different um, papers out there and guidance out there that we've pulled together. So we'll put some show notes together. So if people are interested in reading that in a bit more detail, we can add those um, to our uh, show notes that can be found on the SAM website. So thank you very much, team. Um, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Society for Acute Medicine podcast. We hope this episode has been interesting and helpful for you all. 
please do go to the SAM website, www.acutemedicine.org.uk, for all things acute medicine, including show notes from today's episode under the education menu. You will also find more information about acute medicine, the team, and how to contact us individually. Please do get in touch with us via Twitter using at AcuteMedPod and let us know what you thought, as well as topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes, or if you want to get involved, we'd love you to get involved. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you can join us next time.